Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Daniel Lee, the author of Pétain's Jewish Children, French Jewish Youth and the Vichy Regime, 1940-1942. And the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2014. Hi there, Daniel. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. No problem. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm a very big fan. I wonder if you could get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in working on France. Well, um, I grew up in London and I went to a regular high school. I had no connection uh, at all with France. I just learned French at school. Um, and my, my background was very much sort of just regular British history, uh, the Nazis, Stalin, and very much never really thought at anything much about French history, even, even as an undergraduate. And then one day I, I, uh, I was at um, Sciences Po, where I, I was spending a year, and I took a class on, on, on Vichy France with uh, Claire Andrieux. And that was really my first introduction to French history. I didn't know who Pétain was. I'd never heard of de Gaulle. And this class really got me thinking about France. And I found myself able to ask questions uh, in a way that none of the other French students could possibly ask. Me, as, as the foreigner, it was, it was just remarkable. And that's what really got me into uh, thinking about um, this period. So the subject of this book in particular, that was something that you were interested in right from the start when you became interested in, in France? Yeah, as soon as I, I learned about French history, I, I, I knew that this was the period uh, for me. It was the period that I was able to really um, get my teeth into and, and think about. Um, and I was very, very lucky when I was applying for um, graduate programs. Um, I had I, I got some excellent advice from, from Rod Kedwood. Um, it was really him that put me on to thinking about some of the issues um, that I explore in the book. And then when I, when I arrived at Oxford, I was very lucky to have... Um, so many people, so many other historians um, working in, in this area. So I worked with Robert Gilday, who was my, my main advisor. Um, mm-hmm. But then also we had people like Martin Conway, who was, who was just a fountain of knowledge, as was uh, Anne Simonin. So really, between the three of them, I was just I was all set to go when it came to um, leaving Oxford and just delving into the archives. Mm-hmm. So, Daniel, before we get into the argument that you're making, the arguments that you're making in the book, I wonder if you could, and I know this is a challenge, um, you know, just give us a very brief overview of the Vichy period to sort of situate those of our listeners who may not be as familiar with its history. Um, well, um, the Vichy regime was um, founded really in the summer of 1940. Um, France had lost um, a war to Germany and had, had paid a very, very um, uh, heavy price for its defeat. Uh, it signed an armistice in the middle of June of, of that month, of that year. And what, what happened was France was divided really into two main zones, an occupied zone in the north, mm-hmm. which was really very much the same as anywhere else in Hitler's Europe. So there'd be signs in German, German uh, officers would be around, there'd be a, a visible German presence. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, what was known as the South or the non-occupied zone was, t- was a, by, by way of the terms of the armistice, technically no technically a free zone. It was unoccupied. It was ruled from the spa town of Vichy. Uh, There were so many hotels in that town. So it was very simple, really, just for the government to take over all of these hotels and install the Ministry of Justice in one hotel, the Ministry of the Interior in another hotel. So France was really ruled from this town of Vichy. And it was led by, uh, as many of your listeners will know, the Maréchal Pétain, who who was a, a revered war hero from the First World War. And so between 1940 and 1944, France was ruled from Vichy by the Maréchal Pétain and his government. Mm -hmm. So the book is framed by the years 1940 and 1942, and you've told us now about the the defeat that accounts for the 40. Um, Mm. So why 1942? What's the significance of that date in this history and, and for your book? 
42 is a very, very important date um, in this period for a number of reasons. I think the obvious reason really um, is, of course, that the Germans, uh, as soon as um, the British and the Americans liberated uh, Morocco and Algeria in November 1942, the Germans immediately swooped down and what was previously uh, the non-occupied zone became occupied by the Germans. So from that point on, um, France essentially was occupied. But even if we go back from before November 1942, uh, earlier on in that year, we see other important uh, turning points, um, which are very significant in the context of Vichy and the Jews. So we see the return to power of Pierre Laval in April 1942. And from April 1942 with Laval, you have a real escalation in terms of uh, collaboration uh, with Nazi Germany. And then in August 1942, you have for the very, very first time the roundup of Jews in the southern zone, in the free zone. Mm -hmm. And this is really uh, an, a, a huge turning point uh, in the relationship between Vichy and its, uh, its Jewish citizens at that time. So my, my book really ends there um, mm -hmm. because what I'm interested in um, and I hope to, uh, to be able to talk to you about uh, today is really uh, things to do with coexistence and mm -hmm. cooperate, cooperation between Vichy and its Jews. Whereas I feel that beyond 42, and we're looking at 43, 44, such coexistence um, becomes almost impossible. Mm -hmm. it, it, cooperation is no longer possible. What's interesting for me is the early years where the ball is still up in the air between Vichy and the Jews. Nobody knows quite what way things are going to work out. Mm -hmm. Whereas after that point... People, people are scared. Jews are scared. Mm -hmm. Throughout the book, Daniel, you're engaged with what seems to be a dominant set of themes and approaches to the history of French Jews under Vichy. So you identify these three main categories or modes in thinking about French Jewry during the period, persecution, resistance, um, and rescue. And, and these come up again and again um, throughout the book. Uh, and, and you're making an intervention with respect to these, these categories and ways of thinking about the period. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about those categories or those ways of thinking about Jews mm. under Vichy and the existing scholarship on Vichy along these lines? No, of course. Um, that's an excellent question. I think that um, really this is a subject that has, you know, I'm not writing this subject uh, from scratch, naturally. And um, this is uh, a conversation that I'm contributing to, hopefully with, with other scholars who have spent um, decades and entire careers thinking about Vichy and the Jews. Um, so really what I'm trying to do is, is to... Um, think about some of the work that's been done before and how, whether or not there are other ways of interpreting um, these questions. Because it seems to me that most, um, uh, most of the existing scholarship have really, has really been framed around this idea of um, persecution in that naturally we know, of course, everybody knows that from um, October of 1940, legislation was in place that aimed deliberately to separate Jews from the rest of the French population. And this legislation escalated throughout the occupation. So from June 1941, more legislation was put in place. Jews were systematically filtered out from the civil service, from uh, the liberal professions, etc. That's one way of looking at, at how, his, how we, we as historians have looked at this question through this prism of persecution. Other ways which I've identified um, are resistance. From the start, many Jews resisted, just like other segments of the population, um, in various ways, in the Gaullist resistance, in the communist resistance, in the Zionist resistance. Mm -hmm. Jews were very enthusiastic to get together to either fight um, with arms um, against the Nazis or Vichy or just um, adopt other strategies. And that one, for me, would be rescue, the rescue of other Jews, the rescue of Jewish children. Many Jewish organizations, um, again, from the summer of 1940, were turned towards rescue as a strategy. Mm -hmm. Now, these three categories, persecution, resistance, and rescue are, of course, entirely valid and necessary categories, naturally, when we're talking about 1942, 43, 44. Yet I feel that just through only looking at these categories, um, it is impossible sometimes for some stories and some historical events to come through. Mm -hmm. And I feel that if we start to look perhaps at cooperation, was it possible for Jews to cooperate with Vichy, for example? That by, by using these existing categories doesn't always allow for this possibility, if you would, of cooperation to mm -hmm. shine through. So I try to look at this story very much through um, the ways in which... Jews in France sought to cooperate with Vichy and ways in which Vichy 
allowed Jews to cooperate in certain of its schemes for regeneration. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to follow up on that. But just before I do, Daniel, I, I guess I want to ask you something I should have asked you from the outset was how many people are we talking about? So what what percentage of the French population in 1940, let's say, uh, do Jews constitute? Well, in 1940, there were about 40 million uh, people living in France at the mm-hmm. time. And of the 40 million population, we estimate, because of course, there were, you know, in, in, sure. in, in secular France, one would never have um, been asked one's religion. But we right. can estimate that there are approximately 330,000 Jews. And I think of these 330,000, we need to distinguish between those who had come to France fleeing persecution in, in, from Central and Eastern Europe during the 1920s and during the 1930s, who came in, in, in significant numbers often fleeing Hitler um, Mm -hmm. and pogroms um, following the Russian Revolution. Um, So I think really we're talking about a population of about 100, 110,000 French Jews Mm -hmm. versus perhaps 200 uh, or so thousand what would be known as foreign Jews, those without French citizenship. And, you know, these French Jews, these are, these are Jews who, who these, are, these are French citizens whose fathers had fought in World War I, whose grandfathers had fought in uh, Franco-Prussia. Mm-hmm. These, were, these were Jews who, whose families had been in France uh, for generations. Um, and you talk, to, to come back to what you were saying earlier, you talk about the significance of, you know, a previous emphasis in the scholarship on legislation, and you just brought this up uh, a few moments ago. And mm-hmm. your um, interest is on... Uh, you, you, I think you referred to it as the social relationship between Jews and the and the state. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, of course, we have to pay a lot of attention to the legislation. We can't we can't simply ignore um, the the decrees that were put out by Vichy uh, and by the Germans for whatever reasons that aim to discriminate against Jews. But I think immediately. Upon entering the archives, and here I'm talking about the provincial archives, hundreds of miles away from Vichy, um, and really looking at documentation, um, attesting to the relationship on the ground in the localities between Vichy and the Jews, we do get another story. We do, we know that the legislation existed, and we know that um, it reached um, local prefects, sub-prefects, mayors, local civil servants in the localities. But the extent to which these laws were actually interpreted and even implemented requires, I think, a little bit um, considerable more more scrutiny. That's Mm -hmm. where I think um, we see the the improvisation um, of um, policy uh, making at that time. Local Local individuals in a time of utter chaos in France, let's not forget you know, the defeat to Germany, um, one and a half million men prisoners of war, um, the chaos caused by the exodus. It's in this context that a local official is receiving a letter from Vichy saying, um, how many Jews are there living in your locality? Or, um, you know, I mean, this actually happened in June 1941. Every mayor was sent a telegram saying, how many Jews do you think there are? Not, you know, go and do a census. It was local mayors had to guess. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these mayors were so incredibly busy. They had all these other problems going on. Most, a, a great number of them had probably never even seen a Jew or even knew anything about a Jew. And they received this piece of paper from Vichy. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them often are having to just really especially in this early period of the first few months um, of, of the regime, really have to like balance a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of priorities. And that's really um, what a lot of my, my book is about, I think. Petan's Just Children is really thinking about what our priorities were in this specific historical moment um, for, for individuals who are, who are in charge of putting um, decisions in place. Daniel, you begin the book with this um, sort of overview of uh, French Jewry on the eve of Vichy, and you um, and I want to come back to the question of youth in, in, in a couple of moments. But you you give us this kind of context for understanding what changes after 1940. And would you say that part of the argument of the, of the book is that there is a great deal of continuity from those last years of the Third Republic into the period 40 to 42, or is 40 a watershed? It's it's, it's this is a huge historiographical question. Historiographical <laughs> question, and so many people. I mean, you know, I know, of course, in your own work and in other people's work who are looking at the 1930s, um, you know, they, they are trying to 
some people are trying to isolate the 30s or see to what extent the 30s led to Vichy or to, you know, going backwards, how far were the 1930s contributing to Vichy's? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think in, my, in terms of what I'm doing, I think it's, it's very much, I am looking for continuities, of course. Um, I am looking to, you know, for example, I'm talking about um, how young Jews in France at that time sought to return to the land. They sought in the 1930s to leave Paris, to leave Strasbourg, and to go out into the countryside and to reinvent themselves as, as, as the new Jews, the new Jewish um, body that was going to really um, return to the land, re- return to agriculture, and, and to do something new. And so Vichy, when it came along, offered an opportunity to some of these ideas that already existed in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, it's like so many other people, um, young Jews um, were taking opportunity in defeat from Vichy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they, they, here they are, they are not so different to other, other elements of the population. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, on the one hand, there is this section of continuity. But on the other hand, there, there are some people who, um, because some doors might be closed to them because of Vichy um, legislation, all of a sudden are starting to look for other possibilities. So are doing new things that under the under the Third Republic before the second before the outbreak of war in 1939, they wouldn't have considered doing. Let's not forget, for example, that the, the Germans in, in September 1940 explicitly stated that Jews were, who had who living in, in, in the non-occupied zone were not allowed to return to the north. They weren't allowed to come to Paris. Mm-hmm. So if you had fled Paris during the Exodus in 1940 and found yourself somewhere in the south you would you were obliged to stay in the south mm-hmm. you had to reinvent yourself in whatever way that would be it's really interesting and you know we've talked already a little bit about the fact that you know the book is focused on youth so i guess i want to ask you about that um why is the book focused on youth what is it that looking at youth allowed you to do in terms of your research and in terms of pursuing these questions of mm. of accommodation and mm. uh, coexistence does the story the study of youth tell us something about the broader population or is it very unique i guess to, to the well, issue of young people no i mean of course youth i think is a fascinating category to mm-hmm. think about when when um, when analyzing these questions that i'm interested in you know the question is how far was it possible to coexist mm-hmm between Vichy and the Jews at that time. Of course, other categories I could have chosen or would would, would make interesting um, analyses. You know, women, Jewish women, for mm-hmm. example, Jewish women who were wives of prisoners of war. You know, as we know, um, if, if Jewish... Um, Jewish prisoners of war uh, in Germany at that time, their pensions, their, their um, allowances would continue to be sent to their wives in France just because they were Jewish. didn't mean that they would stop receiving their, their wives mm-hmm. of prisoners of war allowance, mm-hmm. uh, for example. Similarly, um, cases exist, of course, of veterans. We know so much fascinating work um, is being done at the moment um, on, on veterans' organization. There's a new book by Chris Millington uh, from the 1930s. Um, you know, Jew- Jewish veterans, obviously, um, were an extremely, um, con- well, in some ways, I suppose, controversial category um, at that time. They, some of them joined um, the, the Vichy's legion, Pitan's legion. Some of, some of the veterans, of course, received allowance, um, special um, exemptions from, from certain laws. So there are other categories which, of Jews that definitely require um, further analysis. But I think youth, for me, was immediately the most fascinating because Vichy really privileged youth. Mm-hmm. It, put, it put youth at the center of everything it was trying to create. Let's not forget it was the adults. It was the, it was the grown-ups. These were the people that had destroyed um, France and led her to defeat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the youth, this was the future generation. These were the ones who were going to rebuild France and lead it forward. So it, the fact that youth were, so, were given this, um, were put on a pedestal, and the fact that young Jews were invited to contribute to this program immediately spoke to me and made me realize that, that there's something to really uh, investigate further here. You point to the ways that Vichy was plural. Um, in this period that you're looking at, and to ways in which uh, the Jewish population in France is also not a monolith, right? And mm-hmm, not, can't mm-hmm. be understood in, in homogeneous terms, either before the war or certainly during the period that you're focused on in the book. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit about those pluralities, you know, yeah. what, what, what led you to those, to those conclusions? And if, if you could give us a couple of examples, that would be great. 
you know, of course, I mean, like, you know, and again, this isn't me, uh, you know, I'm not in any way saying that I'm, I've created these categories. Because of sure. course, the idea of a plural Vichy is something that's in, existed from the 1970s. You know, Stanley Hoffman, Rod Kedwood were writing about it mm-hmm. um, at, at that time. But I think... Um, people who have looked in the past at the idea of this plural Vichy, the idea that we can't, Vichy was not any one thing to any one person at any one time, the fact that it was constantly changing and evolving, and that in the summer of 1940, there was no blueprint. It's not as though, you know, the, uh, France was defeated, and all of a sudden you got a, a group of people together at Vichy who just mapped out a blueprint and thought, right, this is what we're going to do. Of course that's not what happened. We know that. Loads of different people were coming to Vichy in the summer of 1940 with their plans for renewal and revival and regeneration seeking these opportunities in defeat, okay? Some were traditionalists, mm-hmm. some were modernists. Um, you know, ca- uh, lots of um, people who were trying to, like, inspire Catholic ideas. Um, lots of people who were trying to um, do all sorts of things. This is what was going on in this plural um, space uh, in Vichy. And I think that at the same time, um, Vichy reacted in, in... It was reacting and evolving in multiple plural ways. And I... It did so as well insofar as its Jewish question was concerned. There was never, and I think this is one of the main points of Petan's Jewish children, there was never one single, she never spoke with one voice over the Jewish question. Mm-hmm. Yes, it had people in charge who would be ministers for Jewish um, uh, Jewish questions and what have you. But it, it, it would be um, preposterous to think that every single minister, the minister of agriculture, the minister of youth, the minister of interior spoke had had the same opinion on on Jews at that time, mm-hmm. um, so I think this is really what I, what I'm what I'm hoping um, to get across in my book that people spoke with multiple. Um, some some people were, of course, extremely anti-Semitic and thought that the Jews had brought all the evils to France, naturally, um, and sought to really um, place the Jews at the top of their lists of things that needed to be changed in France. Other people might have, again, seen some of these arguments and might occasionally have like brought in the Jewish element um, in, in their in their policy making. Whereas for other people at Vichy, the, the Jews and the Jewish question was just not at all on their on the list of their priorities. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, with the Minister of Agriculture, Pierre Cazillot, for him, the most important thing to do, um, given the, the uh, debilitating situation of French agriculture at that time, with so many men being in Germany, with so many um, of France's most, uh, most prized possessions in terms of agricultural stock and produce being sent to the north, being sent to Germany, mm-hmm. France's agriculture was on its knees. And so if you had um, a Jew who perhaps wanted to take over a piece of land, to work the land, to till the land... For the Minister of Agriculture, he didn't care if this person was Jewish. All that was important for him mm-hmm. was that the land got tilled. Right. So we have multiple um, examples, multiple, um, lots of evidence in the archive pointing to disagreements between the Ministry of Agriculture and the Ministry for Jewish Affairs over this question of um, prioritization. What's more important? Do we, do we um, place agriculture first or do we eliminate the Jews? And the, I mean, Daniel, the book does a wonderful job, I think, of complicating any of those kinds of easy uh, uh, moves that we might want to make to think of the Vichy state as one, as, as being of one mind or one body and, on any of these issues. And you also make the point that when we look at, well, French Jews in general, but specifically um, Jewish youth in France, that the differences between different types of groups also plays a significant role in all of this. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. You, you know, you discuss groups that existed prior to Vichy, youth groups, scouting groups, um, mm. and then also the ways in which young people were uh, welcome to participate in things like the Chantier de Jeunesse um, under Vichy. So you, you really focus on these two case studies in the book. And I wonder if mm. we could turn to those now and if you could tell us a little bit about why these two case studies uh, you know, some of the background on those two things and what you learned from focusing on these two. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, that's what I suppose the second half of the book is yeah. about. I really um, sort of go to town on these two examples. The first example is um, Lautrec. Um, and the second example, like you said, is the Chantier de la Jeunesse. Mm-hmm. And so what I do um, in the Lautrec case is to focus. Now, Lautrec, um, as many of you, as many of your listeners will know, is a small village um, 
in the southwest of France, in the in the in the département of the Tarn, about. Um, I'm not sure, maybe 50 miles or so from Toulouse. It's to the, uh, to the east of Toulouse. It's this very isolated um, sort of hamlet. And what happened was you had a situation in, the, in 19, in sort of the summer, autumn of 1940, when a number of young Jews who really, having reached adolescence in, in the late 1930s with these ideas of returning to the land, found themselves in the south of France and really sought this idea of let's use opportunity and defeat. Let's, we can see that Vichy is um, sort of giving out money to people wanting to take away land, take over um, abandoned land, etc. And uh, these young Jewish scouts, the Éclaireur Israelite de France, got together and set up a number of, I suppose, kibbutzim, for want, for want of a better word, young, um, sort of vibrant agricultural communes mm-hmm. with, which, with Judaism very much at the heart. There was no way that Judaism was ever going to be disguised here. This was a central project to recreating uh, the, Jewish, um, the Jewish man and the Jewish woman in France at this time. This is something that was developed in the 30s and very much spilled over into Vichy. And so, all, and so what happened was, I, I talk mainly about Lautrec because it was the biggest mm-hmm. of these, of these um, centers. So in November 1940, um, one of the youth leaders of the, of the Jewish scouts went to the prefect of the town and was very explicit. You know, we want to create a Jewish kibbutz, a Jewish um, agricultural commune in your department. You know, this is at the same time as the Statut des Juifs. This is at the same time that Jews were being marginalized from the rest of the population gradually. You know, and mm-hmm. in, this, in this instance, for the prefect of the Tarn, it's only, it's, as I was suggesting before, it's very normal that agriculture should take um, precedence. And so what we happened was immediately from the end of 1940, beginning of 1941, you had young Jews, about 20 of them were there at that original uh, first few months. But then it got bigger and bigger over time. And it was, Judaism was, was central to this um, idea. So in the mornings, a lot of, there would be a lot of work going on to the land, lots of raising livestock. And, you know, this is all Vichy uh, Vichy was 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 paying for most of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was Vichy money from from various uh, Vichy local uh, or national ministries mm-hmm. that w- um, and was sending cattle uh, or whatever. You know, and the cattle, for example. You know, they had two, they had two um, big cows. Uh, this particular one, uh, both of which were named after um, two of their favourite Zionist um, villages <laughs> in in Mandate Palestine at the time. There was no way. There was no pretense that this was ever going to be anything that it wasn't. This was a young, vibrant, Jewish, Zionist community that was trying to invent itself under Vichy publicly. Okay? Uh-huh. Um, and, and religious life, spiritual life was very much at the heart. Um, and of course, there were like disagreements over Judaism. Some people were more wanted to observe things differently to others. And some people um, uh, were, were perhaps not, were not um, as, uh, perhaps into certain ways of Jewish thinking of others. But on the whole, we have a situation, but from 1940 until well into 1943, actually, that this commune continues to exist, that young Jews from across the non-occupied zone are telling their parents, we want to be at this kibbutz, we want to be at Lotrec, we want to work the land. There's no jobs for us in Limoges, we can't go to university, let's return to the land. Mm. And that's precisely um, what what happens in this um in, in this commune. So in one, in one case study, I talk very much about that. And I'm here again, I'm building on the work of other historians who, of course, have looked at um, Lautrec in the past. Um, but I think what I do, which, which is perhaps a little different here, is I actually, I, I, I went to Lautrec and I went to the local archives and I was very much interested in seeing what the local community thought of the Jews. Mm-hmm. How did locals in the town, um, a, a part of France which had no Jewish population, of course, had no synagogue, how did these local people interpret um, sort of this mass, this arrival en masse of young Jews from Paris 
Mm -hmm. uh, who dressed differently to them, who spoke differently to them, who could read, who could write, who had, who all of a sudden were receiving rations that they weren't entitled to. Okay, this. So I'm trying. What I think, what I do, which is a little different, perhaps, um, to other historians who've looked at this Lautrec, is really to try and um, piece together the two sides, if you would, the the local um, pe- uh, population's attitude to the Jews and also mm-hmm. the Jews using their own letters and diaries, um, many of which were, 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 were preserved um, after the war. Um, so that's, I suppose, one, one thing I was very, very interested in exploring. And then the other thing is, of course, the Chantier de la Jeunesse, um, which... Um, was a compulsory, I suppose to even you call it a youth movement, would, 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 be, would be very upsetting to many of its participants mm. um, who saw it more as uh, an army service. You know, I did a lot, a lot of interviews with many of these elderly, who are now rather elderly um, participants, um, well into their 90s now, actually, mm-hmm. um, who, who, and especially you know, Jews and non-Jews, of course, uh, very much saw it as a as an eight month spell um, of of uh, military service. The Germans had said when they when they in in, in the armistice that France wasn't allowed its army. Uh, conscription was was all of a sudden prohibited. Um, I mean, it was allowed a small army, but that that's neither here nor there. Um, official conscription was 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 prevented was stopped and all of a sudden vichy had a, had a crisis it thought to itself gosh you know how are we going to be able to train all of our young men to to protect france and turn into good civilians citizens so it, it, it introduced this system this chantier de la jeunesse so that for eight months young french men on their 20th birthday would be sent away from their families to these chantiers spread all around the non-occupied zone to really become acquainted with old natural France, with the land, with manual labor, and with um, communal work. And Jews, like any other French citizen, had to take part in this obligatory system um, Mm -hmm. to, to rebuild France. So, Daniel, you've talked a little bit about the interviews that you did. And so I guess this is as good a time as any to ask you about sort of your method and your sources. And um, I am interested in you saying a little bit more about all the different types of archival. You've mentioned a couple of them already, but all the different types of archival materials that you drew on to get at some of these questions. Mm. And I would love to hear you say more about, you know, the choices that you made in terms of the interviews uh, that you did and what that experience was like as you were researching the book. Yeah, oh, cool. um, again, thank you. It's, um, it's a privilege, actually, to talk about um, methods and sources. Um, I think in terms of, well, given that what I'm really interested in, above all, is um, was getting across how the young Jews themselves negotiated their personal, private relationship with the regime. Mm-hmm. It was really important to get to sources that, that, that spoke to this. And this was always hard. You know, in, in administrative archives, as I know you know, it's very, very um, hard to sometimes get the voices out of mm-hmm. the young people of those concerns. So this obviously this required me to do perhaps... Um, well, it certainly required a lot of travel um, to, to archives, local archives, private collections, um, not just in France, but often a lot of, a lot of people had, um, although they'd been in France for the Vichy years, after the war they'd, they'd migrated, like, as, as, as people do. So there's a lot of people uh, who had left France for Israel at various stages, um, sometimes immediately after the war, sometimes in the 1960s and 70s, and who had, called, had of course, taken with them their private archives and, of course, their personal stories. Um, so Israel, the United States. Um, and I think often a lot of... I knew that what I was looking... I was really interested in talking to people who were born really between 1919 and 1925-26. Now, I was doing most of the research for this book around 2008-2009-2010. So mm-hmm. I knew from the start that I was I, it was going to be difficult and I was I was racing against a clock. Mm-hmm. So I at the beginning of this project I tried to do as much oral history as I could. Um, and this would often be a case of um, trying to just locate people, putting ads in newspapers, um, speaking on local radio stations to try and get testimony, to try and get people to, to talk to me who might have participated in any of these um, youth movements, who might have been Jewish themselves or might have known Jews who took part in them. And then 
as is often the case with oral history, uh, naturally we have to, as, as anyone who, who who does use oral history, you know, it's it like it's like any other source. We have to be very careful with our sources. We have to um, hold them up to the highest standards and interrogate them, just like any other sources. But mm-hmm. often, oral history does lead to some fantastic things, uh, and I don't just mean anecdotes and, and life and, and details about everyday life um, that other sources can't 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 give. But it also does sometimes lead to the production of written sources, contemporary written sources. So I was very lucky that some of the people I was interviewing did keep with them um, written sources from the occupation. So a lot of, for example, um, letters that had been sent from the Chantier de la Jeunesse have been kept in the, in the, in the family's private collections, private archives. So I was very lucky... Wow. To get, you know, on Monday, this is what I did. This is what I ate on Tuesday. I did this. You know, I was very lucky to get a mm-hmm. day-by-day account of what was going on in these places at that time. So I would, I was able to use the oral history alongside some of these uh, written contemporary sources, which really opened whole new um, angles uh, on on the period. But you know, together with these private archives, of course, I was very interested in. Um, of course, national archives in Paris, but then local archives. And this this book couldn't have been written without um, the wonderful sources that I was finding, especially in departmental archives in the Tarn, um, in the Tarn-et-Garonne, uh, in the Haute-Garonne. Like, these are places where uh, I mean, it, not, it's a pleasure to work in you, in such places, Roxanne. You have um, archivists who are just delighted to see you. All of a sudden, <laughs> you know, you walk in and there's um, a lot of people who are there doing their genealogy uh, projects and all of a sudden they get a serious uh, historian or scholar who wants to look at something and actually use their archives. So they're, you know, they're delighted to help you. Um, mm. So there's definitely a lot, a lot to be said, um, a lot to be said there. So again, um, I was also using a lot of um, interviews that were carried out by other people. Of course, I know that when I was doing this work, most of the people I was interested in were dead. I, um, mm-hmm. it, we were talking about people in their very late 80s, early 90s. But fortunately, a lot of um, interviews were carried out during the 1960s and during the 1970s, uh, many of which have been preserved. A lot are in Israel um, at the Avraham Harman Institute uh, for Contemporary Jewry at the Hebrew University. But even in the mid-1990s, um, the Steven Spielberg collections, um, mm-hmm. his, his project to interview as many Holocaust survivors as possible. Um, these were people who in the mid-1990s were in their mid early to mid-70s. Mm-hmm. And these are fully documented and are available at various institutions around the world. So I was very lucky to be able to to draw on a a wide, diverse range of sources um, to really get to the heart of of, of some of these these tough uh, questions that I was was asking. You you track in the book, well, you you pursue this sort of idea that that Jewish identity and French national identity weren't incompatible, uh, at least in these early years of Vichy, as incompatible as someone who you know, might have only received or or read the work that focuses on, uh, you know, persecution and resistance and rescue might might mm. conclude. And and I wonder, you know, in the people in the interviews that you were able to conduct, I have other questions. Like, did did some people not want to talk about this? Um, did uh, did do people uh, do those French Jews who are uh, exper- who experienced uh, the things that you talk about in the book? Is there kind of an ambivalence about the period? Like, what what sense do you get of the memory of Vichy? In, yeah, um, and well, the I, ways in which people understand Vichy, given all of the literature that's now been produced and the things that have been revealed and and all mm. of that. No, I think I was in the sense that I was working on French Jews. This is a book that looks at young French Jews, so those mm-hmm. with French citizenship. And that's an important distinction mm-hmm. uh, to make. You know, I'm, talk- I'm not looking at, at Jews whose families had perhaps come to France uh, fleeing persecution in the 20s and 30s, possibly not speaking French, certainly not um, having citizenship. Mm-hmm. So, and Vichy, we know, um, made a distinction uh, in the way it treated French Jews uh, and foreign Jews. 
So we know, for example, that the first roundups of Jews in, in the non-occupied zone in August 1942 was solely of foreign Jews. Mm -hmm. And this is something that went on right until the end of 42, beginning of 1943. It's only at the beginning of 1943, really, in the, in the, in the south of France that you be, we begin to see Jews of French citizenship being taken away. And by the end of the occupation, you have a situation in which um, the majority of those deported from France were foreign Jews. Mm -hmm. And French Jews, of course, many were deported, but proportionally, um, they, were, they were not um, subject to the same sort of roundups um, and deportations as the foreign Jews. So given that I was working on this, this um, population, that I was working on those of, uh, of long-standing French origin, um, I think this definitely affected my interviews mm. um, and in, in a way that perhaps I think fewer people had siblings or parents or cousins or relatives that were deported than had I been working on foreign Jews in France mm. at that time or just mm. Jews in general. I was, you know, the fact that I was working on specifically French defi defi definitely affected it. So mm -hmm. um, uh, some, some, of the, some of the people... Um, I interviewed um, really see summer 1942 as a turning point. And before that time, they, I, I, I didn't come across anyone objecting to my hypotheses. Yes, their, their fathers might have lost um, their jobs um, in the civil service or in the liberal professions, but personally affecting them, their young people, um, other than the universities, um, which, of course, we know introduced quotas, etc. I, I was getting a sense from my interviewees and obviously from the con contemporary correspondence that a lot of them didn't so much see any sort of... Uh, they, the danger for them is something they spoke about gradually. It's something that... Uh, the, the anti-Semitism, the, the marginalization, these are things that, you know, perhaps Jews in France had experienced before. You know, Stavisky was only a few years before, Dreyfus was at the end of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. You know, Jews in France, it's not the first time they, that there had been anti-Semitic out, outbursts. And a lot of the Jews at this time thought that the anti-Semitic laws that were being enacted were coming from Germans. They didn't, a lot of them perhaps didn't know that these were French laws, um, as we, of course, know today and fully, fully understand that these were entirely French. But this wasn't always obvious at the time. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm digressing here from your, your, your question. Um, so if I take, for example, one of my interviewees um, who comes to mind only because he's on the front cover of my book, and I, which is staring at me, staring at me in the face. Um, he was a young man who was from Strasbourg um, and was in um, sort of a commercial business school at that time. He was 20 years old in Strasbourg. Mm -hmm. And then he left Strasbourg, went to the south of France, automatically used the, the opportunity, used 1940, 41, 42, to lead a life that he could never have lived before in Strasbourg. He didn't want to be in this commercial school, according to him. This is the kind of life his father had created for him. Mm. Vichy immediately put a lot of emphasis on perhaps performing arts, on music, on theatre, um, alongside some of the agricultural programmes I've already discussed with you. So for this particular individual, he saw, okay, I'm in the south of France, I want to be a musician or an actor. This regime, whatever it is, is encouraging me to do this. Why wouldn't I take part in this? And so he joined um, the, uh, the Jeune France movement. He joined the mm -hmm. Comédien Routier and spent a lot of the time performing, most of 1941, performing all over the southern zone. What his particular troupe would do was you had the, the Minister of Youth, the Vichy Minister of Youth, Georges Lamiron, whose role it would be to go across France and to, to sort of give speeches to young, well, to anybody who would, who would care to listen. You had stadia that were filled of young, um, young French people at that time. But before Georges Lamiron would take to the stage with Vichy's message, the comédien routier, this young, athletic, um, 
troops would be sort of the warm-up act. They'd go and like sort of do a few skits, do some performances. And of this particular troop, of which there were eight to ten participants, two of the members were Jews. So one of the people who I've just mentioned, Georges Veil uh, from Strasbourg, he he was a young musician performer um, traveling around um, as the warm-up act for, for, for La Miran, as was his friend um, um, Sylvain Adolphe, who, again, and, and again, it's actually thanks to his son, um, who lives in Tahiti, uh, who sent me this, this, this photograph that's actually on the front cover of my book. Um, and I think this photograph actually, I mean, I know, I'm sorry for, to digress from your question, no, no. but this photograph is such a beautiful photograph. I mean, it really is. A, I'm so, I was so lucky to have found it and so privileged that, that his son from Tahiti would send it to me. It's of four young men, 20 to 21 years old, who are standing with their arms crossed, looking very proud, standing in front of the Chateau de Uriage in November 1940. Mm-hmm. Now, Uriage, as many of your, your listeners might may, will, will know, was, was this school that was set up by Vichy um, in the summer to autumn of 1940 to be really like the, the ENS, the, the, the training school where the elite of France, those that were going to build Vichy, those that were going to contribute and completely um, transform France, they were going to be the leaders of this school. They were going to go on the training courses there and they were going to be the ones to, to make the decisions. And in November 1940, they asked for representatives of the Jewish scouts to come. They wanted the four, or, well, they wanted as many, I suppose, four to six uh, of its, its best leaders to come and represent the Jewish scouts and take part at its training course at Uriage. Mm-hmm. And so Monsieur Veil, and Sylvain Adolphe, um, were, were sent to um, take part at this training school for the future leaders of Vichy, representing uh, the Jewish scouts. On, on, on their, in the photograph, you can see that all four of them are wearing uh, the badges of the Jewish scouts. They were completely open about um, mm-hmm. their backgrounds and about what they were um, trying to do. But I mean, if we take one of the person, one of the people in this picture, Henri Moscow, you know, this was a young man who, who again, he was taking part at this stage in a Vichy project, in a Jewish uh, project, but then later on was eventually deported to Auschwitz and didn't come back in 1943. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what I'm trying to get at in, in this book of it is that it's really Vichy and its relationship with the Jews is constantly changing. It's mm-hmm. a gradual relationship. And just because people are getting deported in 1943-44 doesn't mean that they were the same as going on right at the very beginning. And that, I think, was was very important. Um, That's really one of the central messages of the book, this this gradual process, um, and that nothing was inevitable. And just because one door is closing doesn't mean that all doors are closed to Jews. Well, I guess I want to ask you about this, Daniel, because I, I wonder, uh, you know, about the the debate that you're, well, the possible debates that you're entering into by making these, these arguments. And I think, I'm sure there are people, and I can't think of who off the top of my head, but who would make the argument that Vichy is some kind of a culmination of a longstanding French anti-Semitism, that, you know, there are continuities post-Vichy, uh, in in France, uh, that there's a bigger history of French anti-Semitism, and Vichy is, you know, perhaps the most uh, shameful episode in that longer history. Um, and I wonder how do you how would you respond, I guess, to the notion that uh, that the book is potentially making Vichy seem less bad, really, or less, less, uh, less anti-Semitic, at least uh, in, in its complication of, of some of these issues. No, I mean, that's certainly not something that uh, I was ever trying to get at in the book. Um, the, the idea that Vichy wasn't a, a monstrous, horrendous regime that, that deported its Jews mm-hmm. and sought to exclude its Jews from the rest of the population is something that can't be argued with. And that's nothing at all. There's no way, shape or form that I would ever even even suggest such a thing. Of course, mm-hmm. um, this, this was the case. All I'm saying is, is that I, as a historian, like the rest of us, have asked some hypotheses 
um, that really are, are looking at some of the possible, not so much cracks, but even, you know, contradictions in Vichy's program for anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and showing it not to be this cohesive whole. And that there's nothing wrong, really, with looking at um, instances in which some of these sometimes, uh, I mean, t- to give an example, perhaps, I think, uh, you know, I spoke about... Um, of course, the, the youth and uh, the scouts and what have you ha- having certain privileges uh, and then the similar, similarly for Jewish wives, prisoners of war. But then also you had many other situations in which Jews were not always discriminated against in a way that we would suspect. Mm-hmm. For example, in, in Nazi Germany, I, I just don't feel um, that anti-Semitism underpins the relationship between Vichy and the Jews in the way that it did in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. For example, if, if um, I mean, if we take, I mean, there's a, there's a case, uh, Rich, Richard Weisberg, the historian, has written about um, landlord-tenant relationships. You know, if a Jewish tenant is, compla- in, 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 is complaining about his or her landlord in the civil courts in Vichy, almost always the, the, the tenant would win when, when, when the cases came to court, mm-hmm. okay? So the fact that he, he or she was a Jew didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Nazi Germany, you know, of course, such a thing would be unthinkable. You can't have a, a case of a Jewish tenant complaining about his or her landlord mm-hmm. and the, Jew, the Jewish person winning. That, that, uh, that wouldn't exist. Whereas Vichy doesn't, always put anti-Semitism at the heart of its, mm-hmm. of its of not only of its policy making, but also of its, its, um, its, its sort of social uh, construction, social, social interactions. Yes, we have um, legislation. Yes, we know there's propaganda. But I mean, honestly, I think a lot of the propaganda that, we've, that we, we know about from Vichy at this time very much starts from the end of 1942, 43, 44. Mm-hmm. The propaganda, I know, you know René and others have seen pro- uh, propaganda coming from the southern zone mm-hmm. as early as 1940, but even René has has talked about this being very much a hidden form of propaganda against mm-hmm. Jews, speaking about Jews metaphorically. And even so, propaganda that did exist any propaganda that existed very much did not place Jews at the heart of the problem about what was um, affecting France. Freemasons, Bolsheviks, Anglo-Saxons, these were the people that took up most of the Avishi propaganda um, at this time, not the Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, to, to suggest that Vichy wasn't an actor in the Holocaust um, is preposterous, naturally. Um, mm-hmm. Naturally, it was, and naturally, I think the cases of the 1990s of, uh, uh, you know, Maurice Parcon and Tuvier and Barbie and etc. Et these are all testimony to what was go- going on um, in in this this horrible period, especially after 1942, when coexistence between Jews and Vichy was no longer, according to me, viable. Well, and you make the argument that that's not just because of what's coming from outside in terms of, you know, German efforts and orders, but that there, there are also these kind of internal things that were within the French Jewish communities and yes. um, within within the Vichy state as well. Exactly. Because, like I've, I've suggested so far, is that, you know, reconstruction, the idea of um, rebuilding France in this um, in this in this horrendous climate this is what took precedence for certain ministers mm-hmm. at Vichy over anti-semitism obviously you know there was a um, there was a ministry to uh, for jewish affairs this ministry by the way and and many of your listeners will already know the vichy passed its its anti-jewish legislation in october 1940 mm-hmm. okay this jews could not be um, civil servants etc Yet there was no ministry set up to make sure that such legislation was even being put into place mm-hmm. uh, until the very end of March, beginning of April 1941. So you did have a period of several months and, OK, you had legislation in place, but who's going to be the one to actually go and knock on the doors and check that such um, legislation is being implemented? Right. So Vichy's anti-Semitism, it's, it's, it's certainly not um, uniform. And it's certainly not always filtering down to the localities. I mean, what I see in the Chantier de la Jeunesse, I mean, I, I found the most f- fantastic uh, documents in Paris. I, don't, um, I think I'm the only person to ever looked at, uh, have looked at them. And what they are is 
individual dossier on anyone in, of every single person in the chantier de la jeunesse who had some form of responsibility, even like somebody whose job was to, um, I don't know, just be in charge of two young uh, comrades or, or whatever, would, would have had to have signed these forms. And so I've, got, I've had thousands and thousands of forms. And what you see is that people were having to sign a form saying, I am not a Freemason, I am not a Jew, I have not been involved in X, Y, Z. And these forms were dated. And so what's amazing is that, you know, if Vichy is passing its laws at a certain date, one would suspect that people would be signing these forms, perhaps, in the days or weeks that followed. But on the contrary, in the Chantier de la Jeunesse, we see that sometimes not only are such forms not even being signed, that... Sometimes they're signed maybe a year later or a year and a half later. Okay, so the fact that legislation mm -hmm. is being put into place at Vichy does not mean that it always manages to filter down to the localities. I mean, I take, I take your point that, um, you know, working on this area, it is a sensitive area. Mm -hmm. People can, um, might interpret this um, the wrong way. But I think that, you know, from reading the book and from really looking at these questions that I'm trying to, to ask and, and hopefully um, answer, I, I, I would be very surprised if anybody um, thought that in any way I was trying to say that Vichy was not anti-Semitic. Um, I feel all I'm doing really is, is just like other historians who have seen diversity and plural pluralism at Vichy, I'm, I'm trying to contribute to that argument through the lens of, by, by bringing in the story of the Jews, which until now, it seems to me, hasn't been mm -hmm. uh, complicated as other areas have been. Well, and it seems, I mean, I, I would agree with you, that would certainly be my reading of the book. I, I just sort of wanted to ask you about what, what you would think about that realm of debate. And, and it seems to me that the other thing that you're doing in the book that is really interesting in terms of your research is moving between the local and the national. And I think in that sense, the book not only tells us a great deal about Vichy and the Jews, but, you know, something, it's, it's a case study in how states function <laughs> and how the local and the national, you know, interact and um, mm. are in tension with one another. So I learned, as someone who doesn't work on Vichy, I learned something from the book about the complexities of the relationship between uh, local contexts and, and national contexts, particularly during a period where so much is at stake in terms of policy and legislation and how that filters down or not. So so that was mm. one of the other things that I, I gained from learn from reading the book that, that I could see thinking about other periods and other issues uh, mm. through. I mean, of course, we know that hindsight is, is a sure. wonderful thing. <laughs> and we know that, um, you know, it does if when we, it's very easy to see Vichy and, and its relationship with the Jews as sort of this downward spiral of exclusion where things are just getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. um, but I really hope that's not what I'm, well, I really uh, fundamentally believe that that wasn't always the case in 40 to 42. Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to show that, especially for young Jews, they were constantly um, seeking new ways to really like reinvent their relationship with the regime. Um, and that some options did remain open until 1942, after which point it, uh, any sort of space... Um, for coexistence was really at an end. But until that time, um, it was... I'm not saying anything was possible, because that's certainly not the case, but it was not um, impossible, shall mm -hmm. we say, for mm -hmm. some young Jews to make inroads with Vichy and for Vichy to continue to allow its door to remain open. Well, and it seems to me that you're you know, in doing all of this work and in making these arguments you're making, and you say this at the beginning of the book, you know, you're making this con tremendous contribution to, to the, to the notion of Jewish agency under Vichy, right? That, that you're allowing for those possibilities and exploring the ways in which, you know, accommodation wasn't just about figuring a way around. It was also about people pursuing their own interests and, um, and in some, you know, dreams and, uh, and, and pursuing things that were important to them. So these ideas of the return to the land or uh, being able to kind of combine Zionist uh, aims with uh, things that were allowable under the terms of the Vichy state, all of these kinds yeah. of things. As you say, you're bringing uh, particularly French Jewish youth and their agency into the story in a way that perhaps previous uh, work hasn't done. Well, Daniel, I've taken up a lot of your time um, and I have one last question for you, which is what are you working on now? 
<laughs> no, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you um, for having me. Um, I am now well, a lot of what I was finding, especially in the national sources um, for this project, would constantly talk about things going on in North Africa at this time. Mm. And I was always so fascinated when I came across things to do with uh, Jewish question in North Africa, and it just didn't seem relevant some of the questions some of what i was finding just i couldn't bring in north africa to this project on, mm-hmm. on vichy and the jews that the the legislation was so different the debates concerning citizenship was, was was so different i just i had to keep that separate so now finally uh, having finished this project on on vichy um and Jewish youth in France, in the, in the non-occupied zone, I'm finally able to return to these documents and to really um, explore them a lot more. And so what I'm trying to, to do is really focus on Tunisia mm. um, at this time. Unlike um, Algeria and Morocco, um, we have a very interesting situation at which when, um, when the Allies, the Brits and the Americans, liberated Algeria and Morocco, uh, the Nazis swooped in and occupied Tunisia. And so you had a six-month Nazi occupation of Tunisia in which you had um, all sorts of horrendous legislation and um, interactions going on between uh, Jews and, and the Nazi population. So this is something I'm, I'm working on right now. Well, Daniel, I want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing this wonderful book. Thank you very much, Roxanne. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again next time.